Let's talk about Jesus, shall we? Let's listen to Jesus. Jesus had some hard things to say in Luke 14. If you'll open your Bibles there. Hold your place there in Luke 14. One of the odd parts about growing up outside of the country as the children, as the, the child of, of missionaries, is that there are big missing chunks of my Americana. There are things that every American kid grows up with that I don't know anything about. A lot of it has to do with movies, because they didn't have Netflix back in the dark ages when I was a child. And if you weren't sitting in front of ABC at a certain time, it, you just didn't see the movie. So I've usually read the book and never seen the movie. For instance, I read Old Yeller and cried. Never saw the movie, because if you've read the book, you don't really want to see the movie. It gets kind of messy there at the end. One of the things that one of the movies I've missed, and I've had other opportunities, because we've lived in the United States for a long time now, but I've deliberately missed is everybody's favorite little movie called The Sound of Music. Are you familiar? I always want to call the protagonist Mary Poppins, but that's not true, is it? What's the lady's name? Maria, played and sang by Julie Andrews. And she has a very famous song that you probably know. It's called A Few of My Favorite Things. You remember any of those? Okay. What are some of her favorite things? Anybody remember? Raindrops on roses. All the young girls in the church just got there in a hurry. The guys are pretending like they don't know. Check it out. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. I care about one of those things. Um, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies. Crisp apple strudels, now we're talking. Doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles. Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. And she's got a list here, if I counted correctly, of 14 of her favorite things. And when the metaphorical bee stings and life gets hard, what's the counsel of the song? Think a few of your favorite things and then life is not so bad. Okay? Let me ask you. That's her list. That's Maria's list. What's yours? She had 14. I want to invite you to write down 10 of your favorite things, big and small. Family's got to be right up there, maybe a dear friend, but maybe smaller things too, like wood-fired pizza. That's my list. I hate my list. Don't judge my list. Get busy on your own. Write down on that little blank piece of paper, write down 10 of your favorite things. No fair looking on your neighbor. Make sure you made their list. None of your business. Just write your own list. Doesn't have to be perfect. Just write down 10 of your very favorite things.
And as you finish that list, you can look in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 25. Got it? All righty. Let me have you back. We'll look at that list again in a moment. Let me direct your attention to the Bible. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, drops us into a full, rich part of the ministry of Jesus. Years ago, it stuck with me. I was reading a case study of a very successful business. Outside the CEO's office is a framed sign with these questions. Who is our customer and what does he want? Good business questions. Who are we selling to? And if we're going to sell to him, what is it that that customer wants? If Jesus had an office, he didn't. But if he did, I doubt you would have found that outside his office. Read Luke 14, 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. Accompanied Jesus, it means. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, that's what they were doing. Great crowds of people are following Jesus. And one day, at a time of his choosing, when he knew the time was right, he turned to that huge crowd and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, whoa. Were you expecting that in the Bible if you hadn't read it before? Does that sound like Jesus to you? It's an uncomfortable verse. My single greatest reading tip, you're reading the Bible, is simply to slow down. Don't just read to get through the chapters. Read to have a personal encounter with God. Read with imagination, too, not to make things up, but to put yourself in that scene and see after the miracles and the great works that Jesus has done, He is speaking and teaching and healing and doing things that no one ever has. No prophet in Israel, regardless of his strength and authority and blessing by God, has ever done anything like this. And crowds are doing the most natural thing in the world. They are following along with Jesus, and in a moment of great popularity, He turns to them and says something that sounds, let's be honest, jarring, upsetting, awful. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What in the world is going on here? Let me ask you seriously, does that sound like Jesus? Wasn't it Jesus that taught us to love our enemies and to pray for people who persecute us? Let's think about other things that Jesus has said. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. Do you remember how He answered? He said that 
all of the Scriptures could be summed up in two things. Do you remember what they were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the other one he said is like it. What's the second thing? Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Look how realistic and truthful Jesus is. He knows you love yourself. Are you aware that you love yourself? You absolutely do. I love me too. I've been taking care of me all morning. I chose these clothes, I drank coffee, I ate food, I sat in a better chair maybe than I deserve because I care about me. That's natural, that's inevitable. Everybody does it. And Jesus says something that makes perfect sense to us. If God is the Creator, He is to be loved supremely with everything He has given us, and we are to love our neighbor. That's a miracle too. We are to love the person next to us the way we already love ourselves. Does that sound like Jesus? So who's this Jesus? Why is He turning to a crowd that is, seems to be doing the right thing after all, saying, hey, we're with you, we're paying attention, you got us? He turns to the crowd and says, let me explain what it means to really follow me. You don't hate your family and yourself. Can't be my disciple. What's going on here? Sometimes the cultural distance between ourselves and the Bible makes, us, makes it harder for us to understand things. Jesus here is using a very Jewish expression that you can find actually in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. For God Himself speaks of loving and hating. And it's not a blind hatred, the kind of hatred that keeps you up nights with bitterness and makes you plot your family's destruction. It's a greater love, a comparative love, where you love someone or something so much that everything else comes in second place. It looks like you don't care, you hate those things by comparison by how much you love the first thing. Matthew, who was writing a Jewish disciple, who was writing a Jewish gospel, actually gave us the thought-for-thought thought version rather than the word-for-word word version, one scholar said, in Matthew's gospel. Look, and you'll see what I mean. Look with me over in Matthew's gospel now, chapter 10 and verse 37. A different portrait, a different telling of the life of Jesus says this, verse 37. Everybody have it? Matthew 10, 37? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there it is. God is love, not hate. So Jesus is not speaking of hatred as we understand it that sets out to hurt someone else. He's just making clear the terms of discipleship. If you don't catch anything I say today, at least catch this much. Jesus has no interest in creating customers. He is only interested in forming disciples. That's it. He's the Lord, He's the teacher, He's the leader. And if He's leading, that means I can't set the agenda. At that exact point, we understand the cost of discipleship. 
We're going to study the Bible here together in Luke chapter 14. We haven't read, even read through the whole passage, but I want you to start counting up the cost of Jesus said that Je of things that Jesus said had to take second place to him. What's the first cost? If you're going to be my disciple, Jesus says, the first thing that has to come second to me is what? Family. That's why he's so detailed. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. If you're truly going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, you'll have to love them less than you love me. Now, this is, we live in such a beautiful time of blessing in the United States in the 21st century that we don't often see the conflict that most Christians have undergone throughout all of Christian history. We're rarely placed in a position of choosing between Jesus and our family. For most of us, probably, when we came to Jesus, our family was happy. I just saw a mom wiping away tears after her child was baptized. That's not everybody's experience. In our church in Mexico, a young man not much older than Eli was baptized, and when he returned home, he found all of his belongings packed and sitting on the curb outside his home. There wasn't even a note. They had warned him. They had threatened him. If you do this, it will be the end of your relationship with our family. He called his youth pastor that night with a really important question, what do I do now? Because he didn't expect to be homeless over baptism. I heard of another young lady in southern Mexico who took Jesus literally because she had to. Jesus said, when you pray, close yourself in. She had to because her family so hated the idea of her in prayer that she locked herself in the bathroom. It's the only place she could find privacy to pray. Went to the bathroom a lot in those early days of her following Jesus. Everywhere across human history for 2,000 years now, People are routinely placed in a position of hearing the good news of Jesus, the God who becomes man, who lives a perfect sinless life in substitution of other human beings like you and me who steadfastly do our own thing and sin against God and ignore Him and defy Him and act as if He didn't exist or only seek Him when we're in trouble. Jesus lived in place as a substitute for all of those people and offers eternal life, wants people to follow Him and trust Him with their whole lives, but across all of human history, all kinds of different people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are routinely placed at a crossroads to choose between Christ and family. And Jesus said to the crowd, who was probably filled with fickle people who just wanted to see miracles and wanted to see the show, Understand what I'm talking about here. If you prefer your mom, your dad, your brother or sister, if they ever put you in a position of choosing between loving me and loving them, if you choose them, you're not really following me. What's the second cost he mentions? It's right there. I hear murmuring. How about an answer? All right. Ourselves. If you don't hate, Jesus said, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Then he uses a P 
picture that they would have readily understood under the Roman Empire. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, our Christian situation is so different from the first century Christian situation that we've domesticated and tamed that image. People have said, I've heard it, that they're their mother-in-law is their cross to bear in life. Well, the lady's just, just difficult and intrusive and meddlesome and shows up at odd times, and well, that's just my cross to bear. And, you know, I drive a 98 Camry with a bad fuel pump, and that's my particular cross to bear. No. We talk about crosses to bear, and we mean irritations, things that we have to get over somehow. A cross wasn't that at all. We've made it into jewelry. In the first century, a cross was an instrument of execution. In Jesus' day, if you ever saw a man bearing his own cross, it meant he was carrying the cross they were going to kill him on. In our day, it would be like watching a man walking toward a tall tree carrying his own noose. He'll be dead in a short period of time. Jesus said to the big crowd, if you really want to be my disciple, you have to love me more than your family, and you have to love me even more than yourself. You have to come and live with me at the cost of dying to yourself, and man, is that tough. Years ago, an NFL superstar was celebrating a touchdown, and the cameras got close, and he shouted something very honest that made people hate him. He screamed, I love me some me. Remember that? Everybody hated him for it. I laughed and thought to myself, at least he said the truth. We all love ourselves some ourselves. I love me some me. You love you some you. Jesus knows that. And if he's really going to have disciples, followers, learners, students, apprentices, there's going to be a struggle at the very heart of ourselves whether we're going to choose to walk away from our own preconceived notions and plans and ideas of what our life should be like. And here's the part I want you to get. Jesus isn't talking to Navy SEAL-style Christians. He's not talking to the elite. This was not spoken to those who would become foreign missionaries alone. Those are the missionaries that we invariably put up on a pedestal because we admire at their willingness to leave so much comfort behind in their homeland and go to a distant, difficult place. Jesus is talking to every person in the crowd. What does that mean? Let me make it as practical and as clear as I can for you. If you and I are truly going to be His disciples, we are going to have to be in a daily process of choosing to love Him more than anything and anyone, including ourselves. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus above anything and anyone, even me. The reason we admire missionaries, I think, like the Ericsons, who are probably cringing that I mentioned their name, because they're humble people. They truly are. We admire the missionary or someone who goes to those great sacrifices, and we make the mistake of thinking that they are uncommon Christians. They're not. 
They just have an uncommon obedience. See, these words that Jesus said are exceedingly hard. They're seldom read even in Christian churches. If you're looking for customers, this isn't the sort of thing you want to say to them. Imagine an American election. We're in that season, and I'm not going there, don't worry. But we're in that season. Imagine this campaign speech. If you vote for me, I will take what little money you have left and tax you straight into poverty if you're not there already. I will take everything you have to run the programs that I see fit with no consultation for you. Please vote for me. What do you think would happen to such a candidate? It'd be booed right off the stage, right? Nobody's making that offer ever in the history of politics anywhere. What's the offer? Vote for me and it all gets better, right? Now, what if this offer were made? N.T. Wright paints this picture. What if the people who were listening to the speech were not crowd, the crowd at a political rally, but people who had signed up to be part of an elite rescue team who had been summoned into the iciest, most de dreadful, deadly mountains anywhere on earth? And their leader said, men, we've come as far as we can. From this point forward, you have to leave any personal belongings that are not essential to the mission behind. And understand this. We're going over this pass because there are people there who need us. If we don't arrive there in time, they will be dead within two days unless we get there first. And based on our experience and our understanding of this environment, it's very likely that not all of you will come back, and those who do will have lost all the belongings they leave here today. What would the reaction among such people be? If these are truly the hard, courageous people who sign up for hard things, they would leave those belongings behind, not because they wanted to, not because they wanted to leave their favorite book or a favorite treasured belonging that reminded them of their family, they wouldn't want it to get lost in the snow on that desolate mountaintop. They would leave it there as a sacred offering because someone else's life mattered more. And they would go forward not knowing if they were among those who were going to die in the effort to rescue someone else because that's exactly why they joined this elite group. Jesus isn't looking for elite people. Don't misunderstand me. He's looking for people drawn from the ordinary ranks of created beings who have all been ruined by sin and separated from God to hear His voice and understand that He truly is supreme and He is worth obeying, and obeying Him is always a blessing in the long run, even if you only see that in eternity. And He's looking for not uncommon people, but people with uncommon trust that He knows the way to simply do what He says. That's what He's after. If you truly are a Christian, if you have placed your faith savingly in Jesus Christ, this is the life He's inviting you into, and you can because He will make you capable. You won't do this in your own strength. You'll do this with your redeemed life, with your renewed heart and mind, and you will sometimes with great fear and not understanding the next step, you can choose to love Jesus above anything or anyone, including yourself. 
James Calvert was a pioneer missionary to the people of Fiji in the 1800s. The ship's captain that was going to take him over there pleaded with him not to go and said these words, Calvert, you will lose your life and the life of those who love you if you go among those savages, because the Fijians at that time were cannibals. Calvert gave a mission, an answer that has resonated in missionary history and encouraged Christians of all kinds ever since. He said, we died before we came here. That's what Jesus meant. That that list of favorite things that you wrote down, understand, those aren't things to be hated. Those are things to be loved less than Jesus. And that's hard enough. To choose between family, to choose between Jesus and self, that's hard enough. But Jesus makes it this clear and presents it in this stark language. Luke was writing a gospel to Gentiles, but he keeps, I think, the Hebrew saying, the Hebrew expression in all of its harshness and arresting, shocking value because he wanted his readers not to be easy customers who thought that Jesus could be used for an occasional blessing or used to improve their lives to make the life they had always dreamed of. That Jesus is being presented all over the world, and it's not the real and true Jesus of Scripture. It's not the Son of God. He says, come die with me and have everything else. Come lose your life for my sake and gain it. Try to hang on to your life, and you'll discover that it's like trying to hold on to a fistful of water. The more tightly you grasp it, the quicker you lose it. Jesus invites the crowd to think it over. Look in verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he lays laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, see, this man began to build and was not able to finish. There's construction sites like that all over Huntington Beach. Somebody didn't truly account for the cost, and now it's kind of a blight on the city and an embarrassment, I'm sure, to them. He gives another analogy, maybe even more severe than the other one, encouraging the crowd to count the cost. Verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a gray way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Hmm. What's that about? Jesus is wise and loving and faithful and truthful. He's not inviting people, in other words, to make hasty decisions. He is telling them, sit down and think it over. Be like a builder who's going to build a great tower, who's going to sit down and figure out the budget to make sure he can finish so that he doesn't become the village laughingstock. Be like a king who's undermanned, who has a small army, who sees a greater army twice his size coming toward him and has to make a life-giving determination. Can I fight and win with half the men? Or should I send a delegation ahead and ask for terms of peace? Jesus says if you don't count the cost, you won't make a true decision. You won't be real about what you're deciding. And then he gives a third cost. 
and a tough one. Verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Could he make it any tougher? Renounce all your possessions? Okay, let's count the cost so far. Jesus is saying, I want to be loved more than what? Family. I want to be loved more than, and I want to be loved more than stuff. And that's hard. See, because in my own little favorite things list, I put people first, but then I got down to stuff. I love wood-fired pizza. It's not the most important thing in my life. If life depended upon it, I would say goodbye to it forever, but I love wood-fired pizza. It's just one of those good things that God has given us to enjoy, I'm sure of it. <laughs> I love the Pacific Ocean and the breeze that it provides that makes it so that I can live here in Huntington Beach without air conditioning. I literally open the window when it's hot in my house and that breeze runs through it and it makes me think of God, that He is good. And I could live in many other places, but I live in this one. And I take that little breeze as a reminder of his goodness. C.S. Lewis, in his great little book, Letters to Malcolm, said that he was trying in prayer to remember not only to be grateful, which is so natural, but to take the gifts that God gives and go beyond gratitude and go to adoration and worship. Reminding himself of these things, the things that you wrote down as some of your favorites should make you, as Lewis says, your mind runs up the sunbeam back to the sun that produced it. And you look at those favorite things, including your children and your loved ones and the gift of friendship and the significance of work and all of these precious, beautiful, some long-lasting, even others eternal that God has given us, and it makes us think, what sort of God must this be to give me so many good things? And all of those things, the Bible says, all of those good things that God has lavished into your life are from God and to be enjoyed with gratitude and worship from Him. But Jesus says, if you love them more than you love me, you're not really my disciple. That's why He mentions the stuff at the end. Because people who have been blessed so much and enjoy so much from God can become like children ten minutes after the Christmas presents have open, been opened. You ever seen kids love the gift and forget the giver? They're so enthralled with the stuff that mom and dad bought them that mom and dad asked for the simplest things like turn the new stereo down and the kid gets vicious? No! It's mine! Now, what just happened there? The gift was more loved than the giver. And the gift, not because of the giver's fault, but because the, the person who was given that simple gift forgot his priorities and loved his gifts more than he loved the giver. Jesus won't have it. He's not interested in customers. He's not interested in clients. He's not interested in market share. He's trying to form disciples. And this last little cryptic thing he says here at the end of verse 14 seems to change the subject entirely, but Jesus is a masterful teacher and every single image points to something great. Read it with me and you'll see what I mean. He said, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile, it is thrown away. 
he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, a Jewish way of saying, pay attention, that's really important. Now, what in the world is he talking about? How many of you use sea salt at home? You've gone trendy and gone to Sprouts and you're buying sea salt now. Because Morton's is for losers and you, you, need, you need sea salt. Anybody doing that? Yeah, me too. Um, sometimes. When I'm feeling trendy. If you go home and look at your sea salt, look on the bottom of the bag, you'll discover an expiration date. That's really strange. See, pure salt is always salty. It can't be anything else. But sea salt, like the kind that was being dragged out of the Dead Sea in Jesus' day, it came mixed with other minerals. And given enough time, if it wasn't processed well, if the gypsum that naturally occurred with the salt around the Dead Sea stayed in the mixture, that salt would eventually lose its taste and be useless. And the things that had been preserved in that salt would actually rot. And the salt that was so valuable, in fact, people were paid with it in the ancient world. That's where we get our expression that someone is worth their salt. He's worth their pay. He's worth his money. Would actually be a hindrance, a waste. It would let people down. It would make people sick if you would put meat to preserve in salt that was no longer salty. When that happened, people did exactly what Jesus is describing. They'd throw it out, throw it on the weights, on, throw it on the roads. The best thing it could be when in that condition was weed killer. What does Jesus, what does this have to do with being a genuine disciple? Jesus says, if you're really my disciple, you'll live out your purpose. If you will be truly committed, not just a fan, but a genuine follower, See, a fan goes with the leader as long as it serves him. I'm a fan of all kinds of different things, and my interest wanes in being a fan of those things at exactly the point that my benefit stops. I'm a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. How many times will I pay again to go to a game? Never. I've been there too many times. It's too painful. It's too costly to pay that amount of money and walk out with those crushing defeats. It's never going to happen. <laughs> I'm just a fan. I used to be a fan of a great little Mexican restaurant, or I thought it was great until it made me violently sick. And at that point, I stopped being a fan. I've never been back. Check with me later if you want to know the name of the place. But, you know, everybody has bad days. I don't want to make things hard for them. Jesus says, I'm not looking for fans. I'm not looking for customers. I'm looking for followers. And I know exactly where I'm going. I'm leading on to life itself. I am life. If you'll follow me, you'll have life. But all of these things that you have received, all of those things will call out for your attention. Some of them, even your very family, may test your loyalty. And if you choose anything to love more than you love me, you're not really following me. See, one of the things that Jesus is trying to tell us here is that only people who are dying to themselves are becoming like Him. That's the process of discipleship, where you think less and less about yourself and more and more about Him, and you're more and more willing to do exactly what He asks. If you do that, Jesus says you'll be salt in a world that is rotten. 
You'll be light in a world, but it's dark. You'll live out your purpose, but if you compromise, if you're half-hearted, if you're only with Jesus until it becomes difficult, and then you retreat to some of the gifts that God has given you, you'll never live out your purpose. You won't be, mark this, you won't be worthless, but you will be useless. And no disciple of Jesus Christ is useless. If you will make a careful evaluation as He has invited you to do and look across your whole life and all the things you love and say to Jesus today, and then again tomorrow, and then again the day after that, Jesus, with all of these good things that you've given me, I turn them only to worship and gratitude. I receive them from you because I know you love me. They remind me that you're good, but I don't love them. Anything on earth, including myself, I don't love any of it or anyone more than I love you. That's discipleship. And you take that step of uncommon obedience on a Sunday in August, and then on the following Monday, and then on the Tuesday that comes after that, you do that day after day after day after day, you'll be amazed where Jesus takes you and what He uses you to do. That'll change everything about you. That will make your Bible reading not a search for concepts and cool ideas or things to learn about God, but an actual living encounter with the God who loves you and knows everything. It'll make prayer not a wrestling match to try to get God to do what you want, but a seeking after His voice where you open up your heart, half-hearted as it may be on any given day, and say, God, as best I can with the understanding and the faith I have now, here I am. Tell me what to do. Show up. Provide for me. Show me. Direct me. And He will. It takes parenting into a whole other realm because, parents, your kids are being pressed hard by a godless culture. And if you're really following Jesus, you'll sometimes have to take very difficult stands and point your kids back to Jesus and explain that there are certain things that you simply won't have them say or do or think or get into because, not because you're an old fuddy-duddy, but because Jesus is better and He's worth it. And you may not be popular at that point. You may be deeply unpopular, but that's a case of a parent choosing Christ and loyalty to Jesus over succumbing to the easy, strong waves of culture. It works for kids too. Students, never in my lifetime have I seen an environment for students, junior high and high school students, that makes it so alluring to love anything and everyone except Jesus. I love the story of the student who, before leaving town, gathered up his friends and apologized to them for not pointing them to Jesus in the time they had been friends. That's discipleship. That takes courage. Wherever you'll hear his voice calling you to love him more than whatever it is for you, there's no telling. It may have to do with your marriage or your singleness. It may have to do with your parenting or your obedience to your parents. It may have to do with your job or your not having a job. It may, do, it may have to do with your budget. 
Discipleship on these terms sees giving to spread the gospel through a local church like ours and the missionaries it sends, not as a grudging obligation to meet a church budget, but a generous opportunity from God who gives us all things, and we give to the very limits of our faith so that other people will know who Jesus is. It changes everything if you're getting up every morning to take instructions from Him as the leader rather than coming to Him as a customer saying, Lord, here's what I would like next. So let's take a moment and let's pray. And you look over your list and ask yourself and ask Him to show you if there's anything on earth you love more than Him. And if He guides you and leads you, surrender it to Him. Can we do that now? Listen, maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. You've given yourself into everything on earth, career, achievement, success, significance, but you are not certain that Jesus is your Savior. Could I invite you in His name to give up on that stuff? Give up on yourself and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Save me. And if you know Him already, could I invite you in His name to talk about those one or two things that you love so much that they crowd Him out? Say, Jesus, you're first. You above me. You above my stuff. You above my friends. You above my family. I love them dearly, but you come first. Lord, you know what those things are for me, including the comfort and predictability that my life usually offers. I want to leave that in your hands at your feet so that you may lead as you choose. I pray that you do the same for my brothers and sisters. If they've become distracted and enamored with anything more than you, if they love anything more than they love you, call them back just now with your sweet, loving, faithful voice so that they may live life as you intended and look back at the end of life and know that you were worth it. And because you're good, we surrender these things and think that we make sacrifices and discover eventually that we've made no sacrifices at all, that it's all been good and it's all been worth it. If someone here doesn't know you, I pray that, Lord, by your will and power and strength, you would draw their heart right now and they would turn to you in repentance and confession of sin and take you humbly as Savior and that they would let us know that they've done that today so that we may pray with them and celebrate with them and disciple them. That's what we want to be, Lord. May this church never be a conglomeration of customers. Let us be instead a band of disciples. In Jesus' name.